This episode of Brand Growth Heroes is supported by Strong Roots. Strong Roots believes food can be better for you and for the planet. Their end goal? To fix the freezer aisle for good. I love Strong Roots for so many reasons, but particularly because their exciting product innovation and inspired branding has revolutionised freezer aisles across the globe in only six years. So this season, with Strong Roots support, Brand Growth Heroes will continue to champion the founders of insurgent brands on their own scale-up journey. Thanks again to Strong Roots, simple, real food. Welcome to Brand Growth Heroes, the podcast that explores how insurgent brands in consumer goods categories are driving transformational growth. Here our guests talk not only about their brand purpose or why, but also how where they play, who they employ, and how they work has driven their incredible success. And now for something a little different. For the past few years, when I get a chance, I've been doing some gentle digging to try and get a better understanding of what regenerative farming practices can mean for the global food industry. I particularly want to understand whether it's possible to create food products for everyone using ingredients that have been produced in a way that protects or improves soil health. So far, the answer to that question has been that any ingredients grown in this way tend to be too expensive to include in mass market food production, which is really frustrating me. But then Sam Dennigan of Strong Roots introduced me to his friends over at Wild Farmed. Wild Farmed was founded in 2018 by three friends, Andy Cato of Groove Armada, George Lamb and Ed Lees. You may have seen products labelled as Wild Farmed in any number of trendy bakeries around London. It's a modern day cooperative whose purpose is to create a marketplace for flour made from grain grown through regenerative farming practices. It offers bakeries, pizza chains and renowned restaurants the opportunity to bake delicious breads and pastries and cook with flour made from grain grown in a regenerative manner. In this episode, I speak to Ed about how it all works, their community of 40 farmers growing under contract with Wild Farmed, and the 230 plus customers that includes Pizza Pilgrims, Hyde and 12 Triangles, all joining their movement. Ed Lees of Wild Farmed, welcome to Brand Growth Heroes. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. I'm very excited to be on. Yeah, it's fab. So look, we came across you through our sponsor, Strong Roots. Sam Dennigan is a big fan. And we were absolutely intrigued, fascinated and inspired by what Wild Farmed is doing and by your mission and your purpose. Can you share with our audience what Wild Farmed is, how it works and what your vision for a new future for the way we farm and the way we eat going forward is? Yeah, sure. Um, Wild Farmed is a business that is connecting uh, farmers growing uh, grain currently in regenerative fashion to customers uh, via bakeries or hopefully soon directly as well. So giving people on the street and um, food businesses the opportunity to participate in sponsoring land restoration. Wow. Okay. So you said a couple of things that we might need to explain. So you give farmers the opportunity who are growing grain crops in a regenerative way, you give them a marketplace, basically. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, we're, we're a route to market for the farmers. So we have a farming community um, who grow re- in a way that is benefiting soil regeneratively, we like to say. And, um, and then we, are, we collate that grain together. We mill it into flour and we sell it currently to bakeries and restaurants as flour. And we've done a couple of other small projects where we've collaborated 
with a, a gin company to do a gin, a beer company to do a beer made with the grain. And we've got some other ones in the food space uh, coming very soon. And so the bread that these bakeries are the bread products or products that they make with the wild farmed grain, they generally will then brand that particular product or label it as a wild farmed product? Yes, uh, they'll do some version of that or somewhere in the in the shop or wherever it may be, their outlet, tell the story that they are part of this community, that they're helping to move this movement along. So it could be a sticker in a window, it could be Instagram posts, it could be something on their website. Uh, it could be, like you say, just the name on the loaf if they're not. A lot of our um, customers are not exclusively using our flour. They are using uh, you know, many different ones, but some of the places that are 100% wild farm, they might do it in a slightly different way. And are there actually bakeries that are 100% wild farmed flour? Yes, there are. Yeah, there's a few. So give us some names of famous bakeries in London that people might aspire to go and visit one day. Well, Jolene is a very good example, uh, who were our first partners that we worked with. Um, and that's a, a great but long story, perhaps for another day. But they have, from the beginning, been a bakery and restaurant. And now I think they have uh, five bakeries, four or five little outlets. And they've been 100% wild farmed in the bread, the pizza, the pasta, all the sweet stuff. Another great example, and Jolene started from day one as Wild Farmed. Another great example is uh, Sourdough Sophia. And Sophia was, um, she started baking uh, in lockdown for her neighbours and they really liked what she was doing. She wasn't using Wild Farmed at all at this point. And then she's a, a real um, Instagram slash lockdown success who has um, built a business with a, a fantastic shop in Crouch End. And I believe she might be about to do another, as well as having her second child. She's a bit of a superwoman. And, um, and she slowly moved over to Wild Farm, gradually. She just started doing a bit and then a bit more and a bit more. So that's another one in London. Then in, uh, in Sheffield, there is Marmaduke's Cafe, which is a and bakery, which is an absolutely beautiful site if anybody's ever around there, run by an amazing lady called Claire and her family. Um, and, uh, and, and again, they started from scratch with Wild Farm. And it, it's worth mentioning, and this may link into something else you want to talk about. There is a cost implication to buying our product. It does cost more than many of the other comparative products. And so it takes a really big step for uh, an existing business to retrofit our product into it because it's going to increase increase their uh, production costs. So those who've done that, incredibly brave. Those who've done it from the off, even perhaps even more brave in a different way. Well, look, that is the very reason that we got you on the show is because I've been looking for a while, for probably two years now, for someone to explain to me what regenerative farming is or how farming in regenerative manner can be and whether or not it is something that is economical for the farmers. And actually, if there's a business case for large consumer goods companies or scaling consumer goods brands to use these products and these ingredients in their products as much as possible so that we can really make an impact on soil health and on the planet. Can you bring us back right to the very beginning as to how this all started the journey that you've been on with your co-founder, Andy Cato, particularly tell us about the community of people who are now on this journey with you, because it's really quite big. Yes, yeah, it's, it's growing. Yeah. And, uh, and I think we'll, we'll, we'll come on to it in a minute, but it is important that we get 
some definitions right, but we'll, we'll come to that later, I guess. Um, Andy, the, Andy's story in the Wild Farm story is a long one, and it's a great story, uh, but I'll do it quickly. It's all over the internet for people who want to Google it. But Andy was um, previously a musician. He was one half of Groove Armada, um, and he, uh, I think 17 years ago, he happened upon an article on the way back from a gig one day about modern agriculture and chemical-based agriculture and all the problems that are associated with that. And at the end of this article, there was a wonderful piece of journalism that said, if you don't like the system, don't depend on it. Um, and Andy's response to that was to start growing vegetables at home where he lived in France at the time, having never had a pot plant before in his life. And fast forwarding through an awful lot of um, stories and heartache and challenges, he ended up buying a farm. The farm he'd bought as a six foot nine English DJ, the farm that the French will sell to you isn't the best farm in France. It was basically almost sort of technically dead in terms of organic matter. It'd been an intensive maize farm for 20 years, sprayed to within an inch of its life. And Andy sort of hopelessly, naively attempted some, some version of organic uh, agriculture on there, having never been a farmer before, knowing anything about how to drive a tractor or the rest of it. And, and, it, and it failed. It failed time and time again. He couldn't get any sort of a sensible crop out of it. And he was about to throw in the towel and he came across a book by a chap called Albert Howard, who was one of the founders of what we guess we, today we call regenerative agriculture, but it wasn't called that in the 50s or whenever he wrote it. Um, and, um, and the basic premise of that book uh, is... In nature, we have a diversity of animals and plants in the same place at the same time. And when we start to separate that diversity and go into monocultures in, uh, in a field without animals, uh, that's when you take a beautiful solution and create myriad problems. Um, and so Andy uh, covered his entire farm in a variety of covered crops. He bought a herd of cattle, having never had a cat or a dog in his life and was financially very stretched at this time. And as his one last roll of the dice, he, this is what he did. And his, um, his land in a remarkable uh, period of time started to look much more like the healthy black soil that we would associate with, uh, with farming than some of this kind of like, you know, dust bowls um, that he will, the, the sort of dusty dirt that he had been operating with before. And so at that point, he thought, I would say, this is, what, this, is, this is how I want to be growing things. I don't want to start, I don't want to go backwards now. I don't want to plow the thing up. And I don't really want to go down into his whole story and no dig and heritage grains and all these things that he experimented with. And farming by horse and cart, I mean, was one of the things that he did for a number of years. Um, but the, I think the point of what Andy took out of that and what the whole of Wild Farm is based on is... Um, those, in, however many few inches of topsoil, uh, are what the whole of life depends on on Earth. And topsoil is the only thing that can take death and turn it into life. When a tree falls off, uh, a leaf falls off a tree, and a seed is planted in the ground, soil is the only thing that can make that grow again. And so, absolutely everything we do is fundamentally driven by what is the best thing that we can do for making uh, arable farming uh, as soil positive as possible. Okay. So how did you meet Andy and how did Wild Farm come about? 
Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So there's a there's a there's a third co-founder who's a, a guy called George Lam who used to um, be he's a very close friend of mine and was also a friend of Andy's and I'd been following Andy's stories third hand via George and um, and there was a fateful story where I was in George's car with him one day and they were talking on the phone and Andy was saying this is a disaster I finally figured out how to grow this grain but. When I've gone to sell it, like into the local uh, grain dealer or commodity market, whatever you want to call it, um, it, it doesn't. The, the price they'll give me for it doesn't uh, reflect any of the things I've done. There is no, they, they don't care. Like that's that's how commodity markets work. Which obviously, I, my background is in finance, so I was in the car and said, "What you need to do, Andy, is you need to." travel down the value chain to extract some more of the value that you've added because growing this way is, you know, it's dealing with a whole load of what econo economists call externalities. So whether that's in the environment or in the health service or in communities, and he's added all this and his product, but actually commodity markets operate with completely fungible um, items. So they don't care in the slightest if it's um, being grown beautifully regeneratively, one ton of, of grain within uh, certain categories equals one ton of grain, whether you, you know, no matter what you did to it. This inspired you in some way, did it? And, and how did you end up working together? Exactly. I, I had a terribly boring job in finance um, and, uh, and I was always doing uh, other side projects. And, um, and I said, I can help you with this. So what I did was I helped Andy set up an on-site mill and bakery on his farm. And uh, we found, I helped him find a, a baker who was a girl who I was introduced to in London, who is an incredibly talented baker, who took some persuading to go and visit for the weekend. And she went for the week weekend and stayed six months. She was so inspired. And she, uh, she and Andy together uh, developed this bakery product and opened this little shop in town in the tiny little town that Andy lived in that had some existing classic sort of French boulangerie. Um, on the second weekend, there was a queue for bread for the first time in that town since 1945 of mostly old people saying this is what bread used to taste like. Okay, amazing. So where is it now? Where is wildfarm.now? Describe what the community and the marketplace and the products are like now and how do you all work together? Yeah, so the community is, and I, I've been told off for quoting this number incorrectly a few times recently, so I apologize if it's not entirely right, but I believe it's 42 farmers. Uh, it might be 41 or it might be 43. Mostly, I think 30, between either 35, I think, are in the UK and eight in France, but it might be 38 and five. So we have a small community in France around where Andy used to live. And there's actually one last relevant piece of the story, which is in mid-2019, George, Andy and I had this conversation about Andy's farm now works very nicely. He's won all sorts of awards for the work he's done. But if you zoom out, it's a little green postage stamp of um, a flourishing ecosystem surrounded by big brown open air factories with farmers who either don't have the opportunity or the inclination to do what Andy did. Um, and our conclusion was if we wait for every farm to have on it an on-site bakery, an on-site butcher, an on-site cider press, we're going to run out of ecological road. So our decision was to scale the wild farm project. And that meant getting more farmers who could supply for us growing in a way that is benefiting soil. So like a co-op? A bit like a co-op. Yeah, it's like, like a community, we call it. But yes, exactly. And, um, and the wild farm community today is this 
38 farmers in the UK and uh, and uh, and the guys in France who we originally started it with, because Andy was getting a bit more from people in not just on his farm, from the, his neighbours in France. And they will grow for us under a variety of different uh, protocols, that all of which uh, we believe are benefiting soil health and and uh, ecosystems. And they will then sell to us at the end. Well, we pre-agree prices. Why do we pre-agree prices? Because we're trying to de-risk the farmer. This is an important part of when I started looking at this business with my uh, finance background was uh, chemical or traditional green agriculture is uh, a business where at the beginning of the year, you don't know how much it's going to cost you to produce the goods you're producing because of the various um, volatility of input prices. You don't know how much yield you're going to get. So you don't know how much product you're going to have. And then you don't know how much you're going to be able to sell it for at the end of the year. So that's like the least investable business model I could possibly design. Oh, you'd never do it. The only reason people are doing it is because I presume that they've got a love of the land and the farm and and it's been in their family for generations or they've gone into it maybe not knowing that it's very, very difficult to make a living out of it, right? Yeah, I don't think many of them are in it for the money. The farmers who I've got to know are just some of the most incredibly smart people who I've ever met. And the ingenuity and the adaptability and the instinct and the calm nerves and the strong hands and all of these things at the same time. Andy's did in a, in a podcast recently, uh, farmers should be the rock stars, not the other way around. And that is absolutely 100% true. Like the, the, I've been a complete eye-opener for me, the people I've met, especially given uh, you know some of the people I used to work with in the city. It, it, mind-blowing. So come back to this idea that you have guaranteed them their prices. So they go into this saying, right, I'm going to take a bit of a risk producing grain in a new way, in a way that I know is going to cost me more money, particularly for the first few years. There's going to be a transition phase, as you said to me on our pre-call, and you can maybe talk us through that. It's going to cost me some more money, but at least I know I'm going to be guaranteed a return. Can I just ask, how do you guys afford to do that? Well, there's two things there. One, it doesn't cost them more money, actually. It costs them much less money because they don't have any uh, input costs. So our whole thing is focused on net margin. So we spend an awful lot of time within the growing community getting a feel for what is the correct price to make sure that the farmer has a competitive net margin with doing um, what he would have been doing in the chemical world, because otherwise it's not going to be scalable. Um, and then how do we do that? Well, I'm agreeing deals. I've agreed a bunch of deals now for harvest 2023, which is product that will sell in the year of 2024. So we have a good eye line on what we're going to get, when we're going to get, before we get it. And, and while we might be absolutely uh, in absolute terms more expensive than the next product, what we are is absolutely reliable in price. And a little anecdote on that is one of our big pizza customers came to us recently and said, the Italian pizza flour that I've been using for years, which is one of the uh, better known ones, have just put their price up to me by 50% um, because it, you know the, the, they're buying all of their grain from the anonymous commodity markets and the situation in the Ukraine has meant that the price of wheat's gone up. And this is something that we're insulated to because we're a decentralized system. We don't rely upon that. We, we have to have prices that stack up for the farmer. What about if you don't have supply though? What if supply doesn't happen? Well, I have 18 months 
eye line on that. You know, so, you know, so we, we have an idea. We have to manage that like any business. And if there was to be, you know, like a, a brutal uh, late winter in May in the UK, across the whole of the UK, that would definitely be an issue. But we have growers from uh, Cumbria and north of North Yorkshire all the way down to Cornwall. Um, and we also have some growers in France still. So for sure, it's a business risk to us. But that would be one that we would just have to manage like any other. If you're the smart founder of a scaling grocery brand and you're inspired by what you learn on Brand Growth Heroes, why not check out our online business accelerator for founders who want to take their growth to the next level? The Growth Strategy Program is a six-week online learning course which offers a suite of bespoke lessons, tools, one-to-one coaching, group workshops, and access to a growing network of support from smart founders of grocery brands just like you. You can find out more by going to fionafitzconsulting.com and then clicking online courses. Then just press register your interest today. Thanks again to Strong Roots, simple, real food. One of the things that I couldn't make sense of when I was trying to understand regenerative agriculture, and again, with my hat on, how do I bring this message to the food industry, to anyone who listens to the podcast or sees any of my updates on LinkedIn. And the reason I haven't talked about it before is because I couldn't get to the bottom of, was it commercially viable for anyone, for any farmers and at the input level to get involved in this type of agriculture? And then was there a market for it? And were you going to have to charge a humongous price for your bread or a humongous price for your biscuits if you used flour grown in this way? But you guys are proving that there is a market for it. And that farmers are willing to get into bed with you guys and grow their grain in this way, sell it to you, and then you can sell it on to bakeries who will bake with it. And does the bread that those bakeries bake cost more than other bread? Or would it cost more anyway because they're the kind of bakeries who sell expensive bread? That's a really good question. I think probably the latter at the moment, um, but there's quite a lot in what you just said. (laughs) No, no, that was was a really good three questions. Absolutely, that's the case at the moment, but that can't be the case long-term. I'm not interested in this being um, a thing because the world does not, like for, for just that community, because the world doesn't need the four quid loaf of sourdough. But there's, um, there's definitely a question about the true cost of food, which I touched on before. Like the There's an awful lot of food out there that's not paying its bills, like I say, whether that's in the fields or in the environment or in the, or in the, the health service or in flood risk or all of these things you know there's regenerative agriculture has to be the future because depending on who you believe uh, there's somewhere between 10 and 40 harvests left be, uh, before we reach terminal soil decline that's that's not in question the, the only real question is are they going there's two sort of approaches to it one is what they call sustainable intensification which is um we'll find better chemicals like the, the silver bullet which I think comes with a healthy dose of um, wishful thinking on energy prices personally, um, or you find a way where you work in harmony with, um, with, uh, with nature, you do, do it with nature's abundance rather than against it. And it touches on something that we almost talked about earlier, which is without a doubt, the yields are going to be a little bit lower, like they are. And there's a question as to how much, but they are going to be a bit lower. Um, and, uh, then it becomes a question of, well, would you rather have a yield that's 75% of the conventional yield forever or a conventional yield that is ever decreasing? Those diminishing returns are well-established and irrefutable. 
Would you rather have those for between 10 and 40 years? So we have to do something. You know, people are doing things and we have to do things. As regards to the customers, I think if you walk into any supermarket and look at every single product on every single shelf in 50 years' time, it will come from a regenerative system. So without a doubt, the market's there for it. So how do you scale this? How do you jump between where you are now with Wild Farmed and Unilever and Nestle using grain from regeneratively farmed practices in the wafer of a double-decker? Yeah, well, that, there's, that, there's two really good points in there. Um, and how do we scale it? Well, that's our own business challenge, but I'm really happy with the the interest we've got from our growing community, from our business community, as in our customers have gone from being independent bakeries and restaurants privately owned to now we're starting to talk to more chains. And by the back end of this year, our products will be featured um, in nationwide uh, chains. And I think that's fantastic. Will it be branded on the menu or will people see that? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no, to be fair, there's no point in them not doing that because it's going to cost them double what it would cost them. And these are chains that we all know? Absolutely. 100%. That is amazing news. Yeah, yeah, it's super exciting. Um, there's always going to be a few people along the way who have been in this community for a very long time who don't like the fact they think that we're another big faceless organization, but I can't worry too much about that because our plan is to share our story of who our growers are, who we are, talk about it. And on to your point about Nestle, I read just yesterday or the day before that Nestle are planning to use regenerative wheat in where shredded wheat going forward. I didn't, I didn't, I can't remember the details of it. And I think they're growing it themselves. Um, but the fact that they're doing this is it, it tells you everything you need to know. And that might lead us into a point we almost talked about at the beginning, which is what's the definition of regen? Because a very smart person said to me recently that you need to belong to a category for everybody to understand who you are. And I've been reflecting on that and absolutely 100% agree. <laughs> I've been feeling bad about giving you that head bashing, sorry. <laughs> no, I think it's fantastic bit of advice because then it has to make sense. And then what we have to do is figure out where we sit within that because, you know, there's, there's soft drinks and there's soft drinks, you know, there's Coca-Cola and then there's like sparkling water with the fresh orange. Is it Dash they're called? You know, with the fresh orange. The wonky fruit. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. But they're all still soft drinks. They're great guys, actually. Farming background, big farming backgrounds. And um, if you want a, an intro. Amazing guys. I, I met one of them at an event. He was, he was a lovely guy. And he actually, the same event, the CEO of Coca-Cola was there. And he was, and the, the young guy, I forget his name, was asking him quite some challenging questions. I'd say he was. They're so successful. They've done an amazing job, particularly with their D2C business and then their um, retail business laterally. Really, really fab. So we talked about this a little bit. You know, big food is going to get onto this bandwagon. There's probably a really big risk of what we call greenwashing on this. I can just imagine this is made from regenerative farming practices, but yet there isn't a definition, is there, of regenerative farming practices? Talk to us a little bit about this so that people can go away having a good idea of what regenerative farming practices actually are and what definitions there aren't available and what definition does there need to be? Yeah, exactly. So um, I guess, how would I describe So regenerative has to be uh, something that is increasing the natural abundance in the soil, which can be measured by soil organic matter, but there's a number of other different ways to measure it, increase diversity. Uh, but that's very hard to measure year on year is a thing. You can't just say, I did this and look, it's better this year. It's not a linear thing. It can take, it can take any, any period of time. 
or cycles, periods of cycles, right? Exactly. And it doesn't, and we like to, we like to measure things and outcomes. You see, that's, that's how we operate. It's what we're used to. Um, so I'll give you an example is um, we, we've taken on a, a, a farm near Peterborough that we, there's previously been a potato and onion farm for one of the big supermarkets and it is an ecological desert. There's not, um, there's not a, a tree in sight. There are no, there's no bugs in the soil, nothing. And we put it all into a, a system this year, but it'll take many years to get it where it needs to be. Um, but very interestingly, we the, the, the people who sponsored this project, whose land it's on, have bought the field next to, right next to where we're doing this, that's been in a cover crop, sprayed aggressively with herbicides for the last three or four or five years. And that absolutely could be called regenerative. People say, if you're using cover crops, that's regenerative. In our definition, which is the wild farmed one, anything with the word side in it, be it a pesticide, a herbicide, an insecticide, is, I mean, side means death, and it decided to kill, is Latin. So anything that's killing things, by definition in our book, can't be um, regenerating things. So how do we measure the outcomes? I'm not sure. I think we have to go into it, and we go into it with our system of, there's absolutely nothing with the word side used. We are, in our community, we filter for mindset. So everybody in there wants to improve soil year on year. So there's an awful lot of use of different cover crops, integrating animals where possible. It's the thing I said right at the beginning, diversity is the name of the game. So not using monocrops as many different types of plant in the field at the same time. We are reaching a tipping point with this where it's getting into the mass market or the top end of the mass market in terms of what Big Food Co is doing. What kind of questions should listeners be asking themselves when they're reading back a pack or they're clicking on website pages? What should they be looking out for? What are the watch outs? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, for me, it's anything with sides. I think um, we, uh, through the use of Web3 and blockchain and whether it's even on, whether it's on blockchain and not sort of irrelevant really, but with the use of Web3, we can tell our customers a lot. I think the pack is going to become what um, the Instagram page was in Web2. I think we've all got used to scanning a QR code. I'm not going to walk around the supermarket scanning every single one, but I think there has to be uh, a headline of what you as a business think is what's making your thing re regenerative. Ours is increasing organic matter year on year and never using any of the sides. And a lot of people say to us, well, how are you that different to a lot of standard organic brands then? Which is, again, a reasonable question. But it comes down to that we're filtering for mindset. We're going in with, um, with a, a paradigm of we're trying to improve soil health, whereas organic is going in with a we don't want to use any chemicals whatsoever. Now, a lot of our farmers cross over and they're both. You know, the, the, uh, the head of the Soil Association in the UK, Helen Browning, is one of our growers and is a dear friend of our business. So, you know, there's, there's not a question of, oh, organic is this and uh, regen is this and, and everyone else is bad. I, I would just look for what chemicals are being used. But how will I know that if I'm looking at a shredded wheat pack in two years time and it's said that it's made with regenerative grain that is grown with regenerative blah, 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 blah. I won't know what pesticides they've used. No, 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 you, exactly. And I think it's a huge challenge in the same way you can go into a supermarket and, it, and you see a sourdough loaf and it's got 1% uh, sourdough in it. You know, like it, it, it's terrible. There's nothing sourdough about it. I didn't know that. Yeah, there's a, there's a guy um, who I can introduce you to who has a thing called the Real Bread Campaign. I know him, yeah. 
And he, he talked a lot about, yeah, about sourfoe and all this kind of stuff. In fact, I don't know him, but a good friend of mine here on the Isle of Man is a massive fan and talks about him all the time. And they're part of the Real Bread campaign. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a difficult situation where I think, and again, the lever that we're going with um, is brand. And if you're a trusted brand, you're a trusted brand. You know what Coca-Cola stands for. You know what Nike stands for, what's and all. You know what these big, you know what Apple stands for. And none of these businesses I've just said are faultless. When we talk about what kind of business do we want to be like, we start with Patagonia and then there's quite a lot of fresh air, to be perfectly honest. So I think there's a new type of business like uh, Strong Roots, who I think deserves a shout out, you know, for, um, but, um, you know, like, uh, like there's another bunch of guys called Grassroots, whether it's Hodmadods, there's a bunch of young businesses that are coming soon. And I feel like this is early to mid 90s in tech where these names that are not known at all today will be absolutely household names in the next 10 to 15 years. And ideally hope that Wild Farm is one of them, but whether it's us or not, absolutely, I believe that'll be the outcome. And what makes them all similar is they all have the same values in terms of the way in which they want to do business, better the soil and the planet, and the way in which they're going to show up transparently. I think that's the key word. I think the transparency is absolutely the key to it. And I think not through any um, malintent. I just think it's extremely difficult for big businesses to retrofit that. And I think small businesses can hard code it from the beginning. Absolutely. Before we sign off, we were talking about how you guys are going to scale your business. And we said that towards the end of this year, you're going to be part of some national chains, which is really exciting. What's then the next big phase after that? Well, um, we were just talking about brand and you know a lot about brands. Uh, and even you knowing about brands, there's not many um, household name ingredient brands. So I think if we are to evolve um, into a household name, it needs to be as a food business. And I think, again, another tenet on which uh, Wild Farm is built is collaboration and cooperation. So I imagine that for us, it will be a series of collaborations with people who really know an awful lot about their area to do Wild Farm times, whether it may be products. We've done some little bits of it already with uh, Willie's Pies guys uh, who've had a, a great success story in Powered by Wild Farmed. We have, um, we have a donut one coming down the track, but I'm not allowed to talk too much about it just yet. And we have a, a bunch of others from ramen noodles to pizza dough to all sorts of stuff. And I think collaborating together with what each of us is good at and losing that sort of um, 20th century mindset of, uh, of proprietary and just collaboration and abundant rather than scarcity mindset is, is going to be uh, a characteristic of it. So is there an invitation implicit in that? I mean, do you want to hear from any businesses who use grain in their ingredients deck? Would love to. Well, let's do the call out. Yeah, that's it. I would love that. That is a call out with, um, I think, anybody who's using wheat in anything. And I also say to the big businesses as well, uh, it's very difficult for very big businesses to even, well, we couldn't supply a small fraction of them, but if they were to pledge to committing a certain percentage over time of their supply, or well, that would be a huge, huge effect on changing the landscape of the UK. You know, we talk about our North Star is turning um, brown fields greener or, you know, making people farm wilder, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, if, uh, if, if one of the sort of big four or five supermarkets change over 2% of their 
uh, of, the, of their supply to whether it's us or another uh, set of people doing things similar to us, that will have that's a massive lever on this. So everybody's welcome. Everyone should do their bit. I think they're all scared of it. You know, can they come to you to learn about it? Yeah, of course, absolutely. And and, and the onus is on us to make it easy for them. This is a thing to say, this is it, come in here. These are the things we can definitely say. These are the things that we think are important to your customer. Someone gave me a lovely phrase the other day that said, the next big food trend uh, post-veganism is going to be the climatarian. And, um, and, I, um, and I think um, the, the job for uh, me in my position and, um, and the other pe- my peers and other businesses is to make sure that this um, movement doesn't become like vegetarianism in the 80s and it becomes more like electric cars in the last few years that for some reason it caught the cultural uh, zeitgeist, I hate that word, but either way caught just a cultural phenomenon and people wanted to be part of it to show off that they're part of it. What about Prince Charles and Prince Harry? I mean, I'm not a royalist in any way, shape or form, but they do a lot of good work in this field. Boom, boom. Prince Charles was light years ahead of people on this stuff. So yeah, and again, if the if the future king of England <laughs> is listening, I would be, yeah. If you're listening, that, that that could be one more decent. Yeah, patron, a patron of wild yeah, farms. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Why not? I know he wants to do a lot more in this area, so why not? Look, I've really enjoyed learning some great things from you over the last week or two. Thank you so much for taking me on this journey and for our listeners today. It's a really complex subject, but you guys have grabbed the bull by the horns and decided to try and make an economically viable model for something that nobody else has been brave enough to grasp or clever enough, actually. I think the key thing that you mentioned there was this guaranteed price, because before that was there, then it just didn't work for anyone. So it took maybe that external professional background in a different sphere, which is in finance. And that's really interesting, isn't it? How you can bring a skill and a piece of knowledge from somewhere else. And yeah. So look, thank you so much, Ed Lees from Wild Farmed. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thanks again to Strong Roots, simple, real food. 